Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is inspired to teach us, to train us, and to bring us closer to you. And so we pray, Father, tonight as we look at these words of wisdom written by Solomon all those years ago, that your spirit would speak to us clearly in our lives that we live today. Amen. Well, the uh, title of this series is Living with Faith in the Practical Lives that We Live. And we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the second in the series. Richard started off last week with the first one. But before we get into any detail concerning this chapter, and there is quite a lot of detail in this, and it'll be, to some extent, quite a long slog to get through it, uh, I want to ask a, a basic question. Do we understand what wisdom is all about? And is the wisdom of the ancients the same as what we understand by the wisdom that we use the word today? Now, the practical wisdom of the ancients often took the form, firstly, of popular proverbs which expresses in pithy terms certain observed regularities, whether that be in the natural world or in human behaviour. So we've got a saying even today that comes from them. So for instance, we say, a red sky at night is the shepherd's delight. And that comes from, whoops, that comes from uh, Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus actually makes that statement. And of course, we've got other statements as well that give those sorts of messages. For instance, there are none so deaf as those that will not hear. And of course, Jesus, in his parables, uh, teaches through wisdom statements. He does it in such a way that we will look at later on in this service. But why do we use wisdom literature? And what are the questions that are asked? And what actually is wisdom? So what is the understanding that we have of wisdom? What do we understand about the meaning of the word? Well, when I get like this, I have to turn to the dictionary. So the Collins Dictionary says this, the ability to use your experience and knowledge in order to make sensible decisions or judgments. It's something perhaps that we would agree with. It isn't simply intelligence, isn't it? It's not simply knowledge or even understanding that can come from a book. No, it's the ability to use these in such a way that common sense prevails and choices are made that are beneficial and productive. And it usually comes from experience. We learn from experience. At least if we're wise, we hope we do. For instance, just to give you an example, we can hear lectures on swimming, we can read books on swimming, and you can understand the concept of the buoyancy of the water from observation, 
But until you actually jump in the water and get some experience, we won't have true wisdom about water. And that might make all the difference between swimming and drowning. Experience is often the best teacher. But is this what Ecclesiastes is all about? Is this the same as biblical wisdom? Well, the biblical definition of wisdom is often given as this. Written by King Solomon, who also, we think, wrote this book, he writes in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And uh, Paul, the apostle, writes this, the earthly wisdom is really no wisdom at all because the wisdom of the world is folly with God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. But as you look at that uh, statement up there, of course it begs another question, doesn't it? What does it mean the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? What is the fear of the Lord? Well, I'd like to suggest to you it's not the fear of being struck by lightning or being struck down dead. No, really, it's more of someone who has a holy reverence and respect to God and for his word, the Bible. Because where there is fear, there tends to be obedience. And God says that he prefers people that are obedient over sacrifice. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. In other words, what he's saying is he wants people who are obedient rather than just religious. Now, in biblical culture, then, wisdom begins with reverence for God and a fear for him and his word. That's where wisdom begins, the fear of the Lord. And so this is what we're going to consider as we look at Ecclesiastes. If you were with us last week, uh, Richard told us that uh, as far as most authorities are concerned, King Solomon was the uh, author of this book. Primarily because we read in 1 Kings 3 and 4 references to Solomon being a very wise man. And he was a wise man because he had asked God for this gift of wisdom. And of course, this doesn't have to be restricted to Solomon. This is something that each one of us can do. We can pray that the Holy Spirit would give us insight and wisdom as we have to live in this world with its philosophies and its norms. Of course, we have the benefit that uh, Solomon didn't have of having the whole of the canon of Scripture, the whole of the Bible. We have the teachings of Jesus and the apostles as well concerning wisdom. So we read in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubt, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about. So we can ask for wisdom 
And as we go through this passage and as we go through this series, it is something that perhaps would be good that we can all do. But of course, our interpretation of this passage will depend upon the translators who wrote the books that we've got called the Bible. Now, Richard last week said that uh, there is a Hebrew word called Habel, if that's pronounced right, uh, which is translated in the NIV as meaningless. And he said last week that that is often translated in different ways, sometimes as transient or temporary or vanity. So, for instance, the ESV version of verse 1 in our reading says this. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And this is the way we're going to take this word uh, today, evil. We're going to take it as vanity, meaningless, transient, we can use those translations. So what do we got then? Let's turn to the actual chapter 2 then. It's quite a long chapter and it's quite, uh, it's quite muddled in certain ways, but it deals with three aspects of life that we all live. Firstly, it deals with pleasure. If you look at verses 1 to 11, and it would be good if you have your Bibles open, Okay, uh, it deals with pleasure and all the things that pleasure can produce for us, wealth, success, freedom, great buildings, etc. It deals with wisdom in, in verses 12 to 16, and it deals with work, verses 12 to 23. But the difficulty for us is, of course, is that They are a bit muddled up in lots of ways, so we have to keep flitting backwards and forwards. So let's make a start then with section one. That is all about pleasure and what is good for us to do within a short period of life. So if you look at the first three verses of this passage that we have in front of us, the underlying point in these first three verses is that the writer wants to test or to see what is worthwhile in his short life. He wants to see what he should do in his short life, how he should organise things. He wants to see whether his wisdom will stand the test. Notice that he introduces this idea that life is short, verse 3. Mankind has only a few years to live on life, live here on earth. Now, some of us, of course, may well argue this point. They would point out that science and healthcare has, in fact, extended our average life expectancy. I heard recently that, on average, men are in Britain are supposed now to live at least to 79, and on average, women to 83. But even so, even whether we live into our 80s, within the framework of time, that is a very short period of time. So what should we do with our life in that time? We'll look at verses 4 to 9, because in verses 4 to 9, he gives a positive viewpoint 
on his life. He gives what I consider as a very modern viewpoint. He writes in a way that modern man would understand because he writes that success in life is seen in the acquisition of wealth, what it can buy, what fame it can bring, what prestige. In other words, what pleasure. The writer appears to be the very image of success in life. He plans and produces great projects which include showing his wealth and fame. He builds great houses to display his wealth and his position. He he builds gardens, he grows vineyards, he has good farms, he has great wealth. He appears to be more famous than anyone before him in Jerusalem. Isn't this a reminder to us of our culture of fame and celebrity? It also reminded me, also made me think of 18th century England where the wealthy wanted to show off their fortunes and prestige by building great big houses and parks, many of which are now national trust properties which we enjoy. But I'm sure that we can find more modern examples of this. In fact, many of us would say that this should be our aim in life. Success is measured by the pleasure we have through what we can own, build or display to others to show off our wealth and success. And isn't it something that we advise our young people to aim for? Professions that give prestige and high incomes. Well, he goes on with this pattern. Look at verses 10 and 11. He denies himself nothing. He takes everything he wants to gain pleasure. He even enjoys the work that allows this to happen. How modern that sounds. Even if the eye culture today doesn't have such wealth as Solomon had, it does concentrate, though, upon pleasing itself, as we see in dramas and TV adverts. Having done this, though, he ends up by saying in verse 11, all this effort, all this toil, all this giving to myself for pleasure is vanity. It's transient. It's like wind. It blows away. Well, isn't this a summary of our society that we are a part of? The striving ever to achieve more. The exploitation of others so that we may live well the concentration upon our happiness and pleasure, our welfare. He then goes on to link this in verse 17 because he says all that he's done has been linked to his work and he ends up by stating that he hates his life. He hates the pointlessness of his work and the things that this work has enabled him to acquire. Referring back, of course, to those projects, those houses, those vineyards, etc., But why does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, look at verses 18 to 23. He does this, he says this, because he will have to leave all this wealth, all these projects, all this fame to someone else when he dies. What is even worse is that this person who's going to benefit from his work hasn't worked for the wealth themselves. And they may even be foolish people one who misuses and wastes all that he has worked for. It raises the issue, of course, then, 
of what is wise and what's the benefit of wisdom. So section two, what is wise? What is the benefit of wisdom? Well, he writes of wisdom in verses 12 to 17. That wisdom is, of course, better than folly, verse 13. It's better, he writes, to be a wise person than to be a foolish one. He compares wisdom and folly to light and darkness. That's what the picture is supposed to represent, light and darkness. And he says that light shows up the real situation of our lives. We can see more in the light, even the dirt and the problems of our life, than in the dark. So a wise person can see more, can benefit more in this life, than a foolish person does. However, despite the fact that it's better to be wise than foolish, both are made equal in the fact that they won't be remembered by many people for very long after they die. And both are going to die. As the saying goes, there's only one certainty in life. That is, we are going to die. Now, of course, this can then lead us to the belief that life is short, so then eat, drink and be merry. In other words, do everything we can to enjoy ourselves, live a hedonistic lifestyle. Well, he expands upon this in verses 18 to 23, because he summarises, he states that he hates all the work he's done, because the product of this worth, the wealth gained, is going to be left to someone else after he has died who may well enjoy the product, but be foolish. Well, isn't this even more a modern ring to it? Look in verse 20, because he says he works hard. And because he's worked hard, he's kept from sleep by the worry of it. And don't we hear of people who sleep badly because of the anxiety and stress of work? But he says all is vanity, all is transient. It has a very modern ring to it. And so we hear, don't we, sometimes people making statements about how can they spend what they have saved before they die so that the state and distant relatives won't benefit from their hard work. So then what we're seeing here in this passage is that he has given positive and negative points concerning his life and work. And now he sums up. Look at verses 24 through to 26. Two short verses, but two very important verses for us to consider. 24 to 26. Because the writer here introduces the true situation that he is in. He states that, in fact, uh, despite what he's already said, he can actually enjoy the good things of life, He can enjoy food and drink. He can find satisfaction in his work. Why? Because God has provided it for him. God has given him food, work and wisdom, knowledge and happiness. And so here we see in these verses that he introduces God into the account for the first time in this chapter. And we can learn, can't we, a lot from this. The philosophy of this age, the age of consumerism, can be put into contact. 
context when we allow God into the situation and submit to his lordship. We can praise God. We can be thankful to God for what he has provided. Look at verse 26. We can praise God that it points to the fact that God is a generous God, a God who gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness to the one who is pleasing him. Now, do you know what's going to come next, then? Look at that statement. God is going to give wisdom, knowledge, and happiness to the one who is pleasing him. Well, it begs the question, doesn't it? How do we please God, then? Now, of course, compared to this writer, we've got the benefit of the whole of Scripture. So if we want to know what true wisdom is, what we have to do to please God, we can turn to the New Testament, which speaks a lot about wisdom and the way we live. Look at what Jesus says through the parables concerning wisdom and what he says about riches and following him. Jesus says, going the wrong way, sorry, that's it. Jesus says in the parable of the houses on the rocks and the stand, sand, Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Jesus said that we should not only hear his teachings, but act upon what we learn. Then Jesus equated the value of his teachings to the foundations of the two different houses. The person who hears and obeys Jesus' words is like a wise man who builds a house on a firm foundation. The winds and the rains of life come and beat down, but the foundations and the house are strong and stand. However, the foolish person is the one who, has, who does not learn from the teachings of Jesus and doesn't do his words. And so when the storms of life come, the foundations fail and the house collapses. So then, according to Jesus then, the wise person is the one that listens to his word but acts upon them. Their actions won't be transient and like the wind. But Jesus also makes uh, statements concerning riches. Look what he says in Luke 12, the rich fool. I'm sure most of you will know the parable of the rich fool. Jesus says this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no room for it. I'll tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones to store them. And then I will have a good time and I will enjoy myself. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. So what we see here is that Jesus is actually saying the same thing as what we've been reading of in Ecclesiastes 2. And so, before we agree that it would be most meaningful way to live is to follow Jesus, we need to, of course, be aware that Jesus gives us a warning too. Because Jesus warns us that there is a cost to be born 
to following him. There's a cost to be borne by following him. And so again, another parable of uh, this. We read in Luke 14, verse 25, the cost of being disciples. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, Jesus says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see that he's enough money to complete it? So there we have it then. Wisdom. Wisdom is listening to Jesus, listening to God, but doing what he says. And so we can be thankful, can't we, that we have a generous God, a God who wants to bless us, a God who wants to give us good gifts. But the challenge tonight is, are we wise or foolish? The writer of Ecclesiastes challenges us, as does Jesus, Is our security found in our work, our wealth, our possessions, even our own image and abilities? Or are we fully surrendered to Jesus so that we can say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour? Well, I trust that we can. I trust that we can rejoice with the writer of Ecclesiastes, that we've got a God who blesses us and a a saviour, Jesus, who died for us. Amen.